Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hey there, Cove Church. Uh, It is so good to be with you. My name is Brandon. If we've not met, if you're back a second time, welcome back. We are in um, the second book of uh, two books that we're studying this summer. We studied Galatians, close that out a few weeks ago, and we just started First Thessalonians last week. Our theme for the summer is this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so we decided, hey, let's go ahead and study a couple of books of the Bible to see how they would prompt us, uh, what action that they would really call us to. And so last week we started First Thessalonians. This week we're in chapter two. And the title of my message is The Heart of of the gospeler, the heart of the gospeler. Frank Abagnale, or alias Frank Williams, or Robert Conrad, Frank Adams, or Robert Monho, take, take your pick, was one of the most daring con men, forgers, imposters, and escape artists in history. In his brief but notorious career, Abagnale donned a pilot's uniform and co-piloted a Pan Am jet. He masqueraded as the supervising resident of a hospital. He practiced law without a license. He passed himself off as a college sociology professor and cashed over $2.5 million in forged checks, all before the age of 21. Uh, this, his life uh, was the basis for the movie that uh, perhaps you've seen uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio called Catch Me If You Can. From ages 21 to 26, he spent those years in prison before the FBI called him <laughs> and offered him a job, and he's been working for the FBI for over four decades. Let me come back to this idea of a con man, of a charlatan, if you will, here in just a few minutes. Last week, we learned that the Apostle Paul visited the church at Thessalonica or, or visited, uh, visited Thessalonica during his second missionary journey and and planted the church. He only spent about three weeks there. Acts 17 tells the story that he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths and then he was run out of town. Uh, He was chased out of town by what uh, the King James Version calls lewd fellows, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. And then, and then he lands in Corinth. He was chased from town to town. He finally lands at Corinth where he kind of looks over his shoulder. He receives a report back from Timothy who went back and visited to make sure that they were okay. Paul was worried about them. And uh, Timothy brings back this word that, hey, you know, they've made it. And so Paul sits down essentially to write this letter of relief. He's so excited that they've made it. Some of the themes in uh, First Thessalonians, as you can imagine, it's full of relief. Thanksgiving, friendship, love, the gospel, and certainly the second coming of Jesus. We said last week, and we learned last week, that the Apostle Paul, in if you read the first chapter, he talks about faith, hope, and love. He does this with the church at Corinth as well. It was really one of his themes. And he kind of gives us an outline for the book of 1 Thessalonians. You could you could really follow it this way, the current work of faith, chapter one. Uh, and then chapters maybe two through four would be uh, his past labor of love and their past labor of love. He seems to kind of look over his shoulder. We'll learn that today in chapter two. And then in chapter five, he closes out this letter with their future hope and the second coming of Jesus. Our big idea last week was this, that the transmission of the gospel happens when the gospel echoes to us and then through us. And so we come to chapter two and Paul essentially begins to reminisce. He looks back 
uh, at his ministry there, his labor of love, their labor of love together. And as we unpack this, we see, especially in verses 1 through 12, that the Apostle Paul begins to defend himself. We could dice this up several different ways. Chapter 2, some have, uh, maybe it would sound like this, Paul's defense, if you need an alliteration, Paul's defense, verses 1 through 12, uh, Paul's detractors, verses 13 to 16, and then Paul's desire, if you will, verses 17 to 20. Let's go ahead and read it in its entirety, and then I want to zoom in on just kind of one thought, one idea today. Paul says this, he begins this way, for you yourselves know. And I want you to pay close attention uh, to how many times, in fact, maybe you would underline it or highlight it, bracket it. How many times the Apostle Paul says something like, you, you know, you witness this. You yourselves know. Uh, not only you, but you and God witness this about my ministry and my life. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, little word that means brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, and he was, there was amazing, wonderful ministry at Philippi, but it was tumultuous. He was in prison, he was beaten. He says, as you know, we had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Look at verse seven. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So we being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, look what he says here, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse nine, for you remember, Brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. <laughs> uh, you know, unlike some of you have kind of kicked your feet up waiting for the second coming of Jesus, I'm the one who taught you about the second, encouraged you with the second coming of Jesus, and I worked really hard. Some of you, in other words, uh, need to get back to work. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Verse 11, for you know how, like a father with his children. Huh. He changes metaphors, like a father with his children. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as uh, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things that your own countrymen, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, excuse me, as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. In other words, the apostle Paul says, listen, back in Judea, 
where the Jews are coming to faith, they, they received a, you know, a certain persecution from their countrymen, from their fellow Jews, and you are receiving much of the same type of persecution. You're not alone. Very much the, the same type of persecution. Uh, don't get discouraged. Look at verse 17. He winds down this way. But since we were torn away from you, Remember, he, he was only there for three Sabbaths. He, the, 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 the teaching was incomplete and he was run out of town by some of the muscle of the town. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I Listen to what Paul says. I, Paul, again and again, he says, I wanted to come to you. I missed you. But Satan hindered us. Coaches, listen. There will always be opposition to the gospel, but take heart. Don't get discouraged. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Cope Church, what I want to do is I want to focus again on verses 1 through 12, the Apostle Paul, as we read his defense, what we can kind of do is reconstruct some of the rumors that are being spread about him. Some of the things that, you know, um, you know, Timothy brought back as a report, it probably sounded something like this. Uh, you know, hey, Paul, they're doing great. Uh, against all odds, they've survived. There, there is persecution. They've got questions about kind of your teaching that was incomplete. And also there are some rumors circulating and you, you need to know what they are. They're saying things like, you know, look, look at Paul, you know, escaped in the middle of the night. Uh, you, you know, he's, he's a coward. He doesn't really care about you. If he did, he'd, you know, he'd stand and face the music. Uh, in fact, the, the reality is he's just another charlatan. He's just another Frank Abagnale, if you will. He's, he's another con artist that we've seen a million times up and down, you know, cruising up and down the Via Ignatia. They've been through our town so many times and he would probably, if he wouldn't have been such a coward and left, he probably been, would have been ready to produce a money bag and he would have wanted money from you. He probably would have, you know, started um, objectifying our women. I mean, this Apostle Paul could not be trusted. And Paul takes the time to defend his ministry. And he essentially calls them as witness. He says, listen, call me a liar. You saw this, you witnessed all of these things that I'm saying. And as we go church, as we get through kind of Paul's defense and we can, we can kind of reconstruct some of the rumors that he's trying to, uh, you know, dispel. What he does is he reveals to us how he presented the gospel. He says, I, you know, I came to you in suffering. I had just got beaten up in Philippi. Uh, I, I, you know, there were, there were some things that I needed. I, I came to you in conflict. I wasn't trying to deceive anyone. It, you know, this wasn't a pretext for greed or money. I wasn't going to produce a money bag. In fact, I, I worked my fingers to the bone. I made tents during the day. I, you know, I preached at night. I paid for my own food. I rented my own room. I wasn't going to put anyone out. I didn't seek anyone's glory. I treated you, me and my team, we treated you like, like loving parents. Which leads me, Cove Church, to our big idea today. How we transmit the gospel is as important as that we transmit the gospel. How is it? Friends, listen, how is it that the gospel, after three weeks, persecution, rumors, being run out of town, and incomplete teaching, how in the world could the gospel have stuck? Well, I think there's a couple of answers, at least. We, we mentioned one last week, that the gospel in itself is powerful. 
And then number two, let me offer this this week, incarnational ministry. Pastor Brandon, what do you mean by that? If we were to throw a definition out there, maybe a working definition of incarnation, it means to embody or represent in human form. Think about Jesus at Christmas time. We, we celebrate the incarnation of God coming to earth and inhabiting human skin, a human body. It's becoming enfleshed. It's becoming embodied. And, and Paul describes you know, what, what his incarnational ministry looked like, that he, you know, it was gentle, it was hardworking, it was generous, it was not demanding. It was, while it was authoritative, it wasn't authoritarian. And then he pulls on Cove Church. He pulls on a couple of metaphors to describe his actions. He says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then, and then he says a few verses later, like a dad who's exhorting and encouraging or charging. That, that word charging means imploring. Or it's, the Greek word is the, at its base, martyrio. It's where we would get our word martyr. In other words, it's full of conviction. The apostle Paul is saying the direction that we led you in in Jesus is something we'd be willing to bet our lives on. It's interesting. Go to church, the apostle Paul, this gritty Evangelist uses the imagery of a nursing mom to describe his apostolic authority. And coaches, listen, please do not get lost in kind of gender roles here. Like, you know, Pastor Brandon, this just sounds like, you know, kind of stereotypical rhetoric from the Apostle Paul. You know, can't a dad be gentle? Can't a mom be firm? Of course, that isn't the Apostle Paul's point. Let me submit this. If I understand the text, what the Apostle Paul is conveying is that he did his best to minister the full image of God to the church at Thessalonica. Well, Pastor Brandon, what is the image of God? I think we learned this all the way at the beginning in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What is that image? Male and female, he created them. And Cove Church, we, we learn throughout scripture, certainly of all the male attributes of God, but I think we also learn in, in many ways the female attributes of God. Isaiah 66, verse 13, among many. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Again, Isaiah 49 in verse 15, the prophet speaking as the mouthpiece of God, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Well, Pastor Brandon, that's Old Testament. How about New Testament? Let's go to the New Testament. Luke 15 verses eight through 10. Jesus describes himself as a housekeeper looking for her lost coin. In Luke 13, verse 34, Jesus describes himself as a mother hen gathering her chicks. In other words, Cove Church, God's, God has attributes, attributes which both male and female of his creation image and project uniquely. And together, this is the image, the full image of God. And so could it be that the Apostle Paul is giving us another clue as to the power of the gospel and its ability to stick and transform lives and communities? Listen, friends, the, the gospel is not simply to announce the good news of Jesus, but to demonstrate the good news of Jesus, the full image of God. And to demonstrate is to incarnate and to incarnate is to relate. Relate what? the full image and likeness of God. Cove Church, that's Paul's point. It isn't male, female, don't get caught up in that. It's, it's to project and to image to our community the full image of God. 
His aim was to operate as close in his humanness, as close as he could to Jesus with flesh on. His love, God's love, his strength, his gentleness, his encouragement, his resolve, his grit, his grace, his service. Go church, what if we internalize this? What if we really adopted this at our core? This idea that how we present the gospel is just as, as important as that we present the gospel. What if, what if we, as we are transformed more and more from glory to glory, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I believe, from glory to glory, as we are transformed more and more into his image, that we could commit like the apostle Paul to give our very selves. He said, I give you my very self. That, that's an interesting phrase. In other words, he was saying, I, I'm giving you everything that I am. My, my heart, my mind, will, affections, everything that makes up the apostle Paul, I'm giving it to you. I'm not just declaring from a distance some good thought or good idea. I'm gonna live among you and share my very life with you. The Reverend Clay Schmidt a Lutheran minister and professor of preaching at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, says this when he, as he's reminiscing and thinking about Christmas and the idea of the incarnation of Jesus. He says, in this unexpected contrary form, the most powerful essence of the universe is reduced to the weakest possible human being, the newborn infant. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said this about the incarnation, and in the incarnation, the whole human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. Henceforth, any attack, even on the least of men, is an attack on Christ, who took the form of man and in his own person restored the image of God in all that bears a human form. Through fellowship and communion with the incarnate Lord, we recover our true humanity, and at the same time, we are delivered from that individualism, which is the consequence of sin and retrieve our solidarity with the human, the whole human race. By being partakers of Christ incarnate, we are partakers in the whole humanity, which he bore. We, we now know that we have been taken up and born in the humanity of Jesus. And therefore, that new nature we now enjoy means that we too must bear the sins and sorrows of others. The incarnate Lord makes his followers the brothers and sisters, I might add, of all mankind. One of my favorite storytellers and theologians, Frederick Beekner, said this about the incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Until we too have taken the idea of the God man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. And Madeline LaEngle said this of the incarnation, the virgin birth has never been a major stumbling block in my struggle with Christianity. It's far less mind-boggling, she says, than the power of all creation stooping so low as to become one of us. In his book, uh, Flesh, Bringing the Incarnation Down to Earth, Pastor 
Hugh Halter uh, opens with an unlikely scenario, taking his teenage daughter to get her first tattoo. Now, no matter what you think about tattoos, uh, much less uh, a father, a pastoral father, taking his teenage daughter to get a tattoo, do not get, please do not miss the point of this illustration. While watching his daughter get inked, Halter asked the tattoo artist named Sean a very interesting question. So why do you think people tend to get so many tattoos, Sean? And why is, why is the art of tattooing growing exponentially around the world? And Sean responds with significant insight. And I quote, because it's something permanent etched on someone's flesh that can't be stolen, taken away or corrupted. It's unique to them, deeply irrevocably theirs and represents a story that has formed them or at least means something to them. When someone lets me etch something meaningful on their dermis, that means a lot to me and should mean even more to them. Listen to this, skin matters a lot. I want you to remember that phrase. John Ortberg tells the story uh, in his book, God is Closer Than You Think of Father Damien. He was a priest who became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He moved to Kalawu, a village on the island of Molokai in Hawaii that had been quarantined as a leper colony. And for 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies of the ones that no one else would touch. He preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools and bands and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand during his ministry so that when they died, they would die with some form of dignity. Slowly, it was said that Kalawu became a place to live rather than a place to die for Father Damien offered hope. Father Damien, interestingly enough, was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the same poi bowl along with his patients. He shared his pipe. He didn't always wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close. For this, the people loved him. Then one day he stood up and began one of his sermons with two words. We lepers. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them. Now he was one of them. From this day forward... He wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. First, he had chosen to live as they lived. Now he would die as they died. Now they were together in it. And Ortberg closes this thought this way. One day God, one day God came to earth and began his message. We lepers. We lepers. Not you lepers. Not you sinners. Not you dirty people. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping us. He was one of us. He was in our skin. We're in it together. I'll wrap up with this, Cove Church. On Christmas Eve, 1854, Charles Spurgeon was preaching about the incarnation of Jesus. And the last part of his sermon goes like this. Oh, may God teach you the meaning of that name, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, it is wisdom's mystery, God with us. 
Sages look at it and wonder. Angels desire to see it. The plumb line of reason cannot reach halfway into its depths. The eagle wing of science cannot fly so high. And the piercing eye of the vulture of research cannot see it. God with us. It's hell's terror. Satan trembles at the sound of it. His legions fly apace. The black-winged dragon of the pit quails before it. Let him come to you suddenly and do you but whisper that word, God with us. Back he falls confounded and confused. Satan trembles when he hears that name, God with us. It is the laborer's strength. How could he preach the gospel? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor own his master? Or how could men labor if that one word were taken away? God with us. Tis the sufferer's comfort. Tis the balm of his woe. Tis the alleviation of his misery. Tis the sleep which God giveth to his beloved. Tis the rest after exertion and toil. Ah, and to finish God with us. Tis eternity sonnet. Tis heaven's hallelujah. Tis the shout of the glorified. Tis the song of the redeemed. Tis the chorus of angels. Tis the everlasting oratio of the great orchestra of the sky. God with us. Cove Church, this idea, I wonder, could it be that the Apostle Paul tips his cards in the middle of our text and he gives us the clue, he gives us the, the, the secret sauce, if you will, as to how in the world this test subject called the, the church at Thessalonica could survive in that setting with those ingredients swirling. I think so. He said, listen, I shared my life with you. I just didn't preach from a distance. I didn't just kind of write down and share with you some grand idea, but I lived and toiled and loved among you. I was Paul incarnate. I did my best to reveal to you the full image of God. So I wanna pray. Church, I, I wanna pray for us a couple of groups of people. The first would be those who would say, you know, Pastor Brandon, um, the gospel has come to me. I don't know how, I don't know why, but a mixture of maybe this message or what's been going on recently in my life. And I just, I'm just wondering if you could help me, you know, cross the line of faith. I just wanna make public, I guess. I, I, I wanna, I wanna um, you know, I wanna ratify my desire to follow Jesus? My answer is yes, I'll pray for you. In fact, down on the lower right-hand portion of your screen, you'll see a, a button there that says, I raise my hand to say yes to Jesus, to follow Jesus. Would you just click that button? We'd love to know who you are, know how to pray for you, know how to serve you. Uh, and so maybe no, no matter where you're at, driving, maybe you could pull over, maybe you're sitting in your car in a parking lot on the couch, eating dinner. Would you just pray this prayer? Maybe so you can hear the sound of your own voice. Jesus, I need you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. And I believe, I believe, not just in my head, but I believe in my heart that you love me and you gave yourself for me. Forgive me of my sin, all the ways that I've missed the mark. Fill me with your spirit. God, teach me 
how the gospel can echo from my life and how I can live incarnationally with those around me to love them as you love them, to serve them as you would serve them, to encourage them and exhort them to be tender and gentle as you would be with them. In Jesus' name, all the days of my life, in Jesus' name, amen. And the second group of people would be those Cove Church who would say, you know, Brandon, before we sign off, would you, would you just pray uh, that I could practice not just declaration, but incarnation. Not just declaration, but incarnation. My answer to you is yes. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I would raise my hand to this. I don't want to just declare the gospel. I want to incarnate the gospel. I want to be Jesus with skin on. Why? Because skin is important. It was important enough for you to take it on to inhabit skin and bone, to become one of us, to live among us, to move into the neighborhood. So God, would you help us as your people, as your church, not just with the declaration of the gospel, but with the incarnation of the gospel. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Bless you, Cove Church. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.